the way to raise real money is to combine communications and digital. And there's no firm that does that right now. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Jane Hughes and Zach Carroll, two partners in Liftoff Campaigns, a consulting firm that combines digital fundraising and strategic communications. Both Jane and Zach bring significant campaign experience to their new roles. Zach is campaign manager for Andy Kim, Jamie Harrison, and Val Demings, and Jane with digital work for Emily's List, American Bridge, Maggie Hassan, and Bully Pulpit. They both bring a new perspective on connecting comms and fundraising. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jane Hughes and Zach Carroll. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jane and Zach, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me a quick biographies? Sure. I can go ahead and jump in. I'm Jane Hughes. I am one of the partners here at Liftoff. I have spent the bulk of my career raising money online for Democrats up and down the ballot. I ran the digital operation for Senator Maggie Hassan in 2016 and have been a senior advisor to her ever since. I also ran the online fundraising operation for Emily's List, spent a good chunk of time over at Bully Pulpit Interactive and other agencies as well, but got my start in politics working for both the DNC and for Democracy for America quite a career already in fundraising and politics. How about you, Zach? I grew up in the Midwest and really was the only person in my family that was at all interested in politics. But I caught the bug because growing up as a gay person in in uh, the 90s and, and early 2000s, I mean, gay marriage was always one of the top issues. And so I was pretty exposed to the fact that there are a lot of prejudices baked into to hierarchies and so I always kind of had a bent of questioning these things and recognize how systems of power would would tap into these prejudices, be it like racism or homophobia, to preserve the status quo. I initially got active in politics in high school. So I actually started joining different clubs in high school. And then eventually that became a career when I one day decided that I really wanted to work for Tammy Duckworth and sent her an email. My first job actually in politics was a tracker for Tammy Duckworth and following Joe Walsh around. In 2012, we had a, I got Joe Walsh on camera saying that this uh, now Senator, but at the time Tammy Duckworth talked too much about her military service. And that just blew up and it became this big national news story and the campaign raised so much money. And that was kind of my first like 
introduction into what we're talking about. You know, I went from finance director to managing. I managed Andy Kim's race in 2018 and then managed uh, Jamie Harrison in 20 and then Val Demings in 2022. And really throughout my whole career, I've just seen the convergence of media and, you know, getting attention, how that converts into digital fundraising. Zach, your narrative about how you got started makes me think of um, this picture that my parents still love to bring out whenever we go home to visit. It's of you know, President Bush. And it's because when I was younger, I um, was really interested in political leadership and wanted to know how to get involved. So I, I sent a letter to the White House. The response was, of course, we love when young people get involved. And it's a, it's a signed picture of, of the Bush family, which uh, my parents of course, knowing that I am now a democratic you know, political strategist, they love to make sure that I don't forget that. Well, it sounds like you both had an early interest in this field. Maybe it's worth having you guys mention right now who your other partners are in the firm. Yeah. So our other partner is Joshua Carr, who I was first connected with in the launch of Jamie Harrison. And that same cycle, he was senior communications advisor for Senator Ossoff and still holds that to this day and made a great career for himself in the communication space. We saw on, on Jamie Harrison, again, like the launch is a great example. This was a race where no one knew who Jamie Harrison was. Everyone knew who Lindsey Graham was, though. So we had a villain. So we knew we had a, a stage, if you will. And Jamie had a very compelling story and and was a captivating storyteller as well. He learned to read through comic books. He used to read uh, utility bills to his parents so they could pay the bills. It was just a very inspiring American story. And we knew that if we were able to tell this story quick enough and to as many people as possible, we could turn this into a race that gets a lot of attention, raises money, and and potentially wins. And the launch was critical to that. And so that's why we planned a launch strategically to utilize media attention, not only in the state, but also nationally. Like we had him go on Rachel Maddow, but we prepped him in a way that he wouldn't just be talking to the MSNBC green room, right? Um, but we want him to at least tell his story and introduce him to Democratic donors. And we raised a million dollars in the first 48 hours. And it was really at that point where we together actually practiced this. And then throughout the whole campaign, continued that to force Mitch McConnell to spend $130 million in the race and and put it on the map. Zach, let me just ask you about that since you brought it up. From what I understand about your new company, Liftoff, one of the things that you're suggesting is that the fundraising shouldn't drag your candidate somewhere that's not electorally useful. Do you think in that particular race where you did notably raise nine figures, do you think that took you somewhere electorally by nationalizing that campaign where it wasn't helpful? Or do you think that the results were pretty unrelated to the position of the candidate in it to a national audience? Yeah, and that's a great question. And you can see it in our even our internal polling. I mean, the race, public and private, um, was within the margin 
in, in the summer. And that was because of what we did. And we raised a ton of money. We put this on the map. We spent a ton of money. And we woke up the sleeping giant, right? We woke up the Mitch McConnell. We woke up the Senate Leadership Fund. And they ended up spending billions of dollars in the last four weeks alone in South Carolina. And then there was also the Amy Comey Barrett issue that happened at that time. And we did see in October, the, the numbers started to, to switch, right? And, and started to look more like South Carolina. But that being said, that wasn't anything that was due to, to anything we did, but that was just the fact that we got them in the race. We got the Republicans in the race and they spent real money. But we started the race down, you know, almost 20 points and got it to, you know, within the margin once people got to know who Jamie was. But oftentimes, as we've seen a lot of races in tough states, if you peak too early, there's ample time for the Republicans to, what I would call, make a correction, right? And spend money and correct the electorate, if you will. And, and to this day, I still wonder if, if there's a way, you know, going back, is there a way to predict that? And I just don't know if there is, because you have to spend the money to get the name ID out and make it a race, right? But at the same time, you don't want to peak so early that there's enough runway for them to come in and define you. You kind of want to sneak up on them. Exactly. Right. And I think a lot of the upsets, if you will, end up happening that way, whether it's strategic or not, right? Where no one really takes the race seriously until the very, very end and it's too late. In South Carolina, I mean, I think folks remember Lindsey Graham begging for money on Fox News in around August time. So there was still ample time for them to respond to what we were doing in South Carolina. Jane, what's the defining campaign that you've been in so far, would you say? You know, I think that probably the defining campaign is then Governor Maggie Hassan's in 2016. And that's because, and I realize this sounds like pennies these days, we set fundraising records online in a race that was launched very, very late. She launched with just 13 months to go, uh, no email list to speak of, but raised more money into Act Blue than any other candidate at the time um, or that cycle. Echoing some of what Zach has seen, um, one of the ways we did that was really capitalizing on moments and making sure we had the infrastructure in place to respond when those came about. Um, I think a really good example here is in a debate in, in October, uh, Kelly Ayotte, in this very public debate, held Donald Trump up as a role model and said that, yes, she would indeed hold Donald Trump up as a role model for kids. That is something that we were able to, to jump on right away. We had you know emails out the door within hours and raised a lot of money. And I think that um, you know, part of the reason I hold that up is because, I, as I said, it speaks to what Zach was saying about moments mattering and time mattering. And, uh, you know, like that race came down to a thousand votes. So I think it's fair to say that that every dollar and, and every penny that you raise is something that makes a difference. You have now been through quite a number of different fundraising operations at committees and campaigns and as a consultant. Can you sort of trace if there's an evolution in your understanding of best practices and what works and, you know, how you've come to like your current opinions that you're going to try to lead your current clients to follow? 
Yeah. And I think that this evolution of thought is actually exactly why we have started this firm together. Over the last you know, like 15 years or so, let's put digital aside, we started with the new media department, right? <laughs> um, campaigns, organizations, um, what have you, were all extremely siloed. New media or digital or whatnot kind of sat in its own little corner. It was something that wasn't taken seriously. And, you know, like, hey, if you were lucky, you would raise a couple dollars online, right? That's not the case today. Today, your online fundraising is an enormous piece of your overall finance pie. A lot of that is uh, because of the evolution of how it fits in and how people think about it. And what we are doing here at Liftoff is taking things a step further, right? We know that uh, when it comes to to donors or voters, people are people. Um, They're not just data points. They don't think about what they're consuming as being an email or as being something in the newspaper or as being TV. They just understand it as communications from your campaign. So we should think about it that way, too. So... And that, that's really what we're doing here, marrying the communications and the fundraising piece. What builds your brand, I think, also builds your bottom line. Zach, you've been for several cycles in a row campaign manager, and I assume have in each of those cycles worked with digital fundraising firms as part of the kind of vendors that you employed. Is that right? Yeah. In working with them, what did you learn about what they were doing? and come to think was working and what perhaps were things that you wanted to improve upon? Even at the house level on Andy Kim, that was a red to blue race that, again, it wasn't really high profile, but we did have, our opponent was Tom MacArthur. And so he actually wrote the healthcare bill that would have repealed the Affordable Care Act. So there was something there to work with, right? That wasn't purely digital, but it was news, right? It was, it was comms. So that was also sort of like a mini version of what we're talking about. And we were also one of the first to take the no corporate PAC pledge, which also helped spur donations online. What the firms did well at that time, at least, were recognizing that the branding of both the, the candidate and the opponent were instrumental in the, in the overall fundraising. But at the same time, they weren't necessarily equipped to to help with that, to offer those services on the, the comms end, right? Like the campaign had to do that. And on a congressional race, you don't typically have a communications director until the last few quarters of, of the on year, right? Especially on red to blue, like it's a very scrappy operation. So we had to, meaning like me, you know, had to play a lot of that role of like getting reporters interested and engaged in the race and working, you know, closely with the committee on that as well to be instrumental there so we can help raise money online. You know, a lot of the firms from the House world to the Senate tend to send, you know, as Jane would call Mad Libs emails, meaning it's the same template that they send for every single client they changed the name of the candidate, right? <laughs> and the state. And I just noticed that because, you know, we, at the center level, we just sent a lot more. It came to a point where you couldn't really distinguish between um, our content versus another candidate's content, even though, you know, we arguably had, you know, one of the more exciting races and wanted to continue to feed that to our supporters and our audience. And that's part of why we started this firm because, we view uh, donor lists as your 
audience, right? It's your list of supporters. And every firm, you know, I've worked with has been good at some things, but I think every single one of them also viewed lists as almost like a technical asset, right? But as a candidate and as a campaign manager, I mean, your list is your most valuable asset after the candidate itself. It's, it's your following. It needs to be treated that way. And part of that is the surround sound of, you know, communicating with your audience on not only email, but also on text, on ads, and also in earned media as well. Because like Jane was saying, lists are, are humans that are consuming content the same way we're all consuming content. And we need to make sure that we're on all of those platforms um, as we can, not just for votes, but also for fundraising. Jane, I mean, when I think about fundraising for federal campaigns, probably statewide or any other, I am not overcome by good feelings. I've learned probably as much about it from what hits my email box, say, as I have from talking to founders of numerous firms in the space. There does seem to be quite a variation in the practices of these firms, whether or not they are sort of a templated, one size fits all, overwhelm the inbox, play tricks on the audience, ramp people up into a lot of fear or what, I mean, there's a quite a variation between other firms that are really striving to tell a story that's very connected to the campaign and maybe fits with an overall message in the way that I think the best consultants and practitioners aspire to. What do you see out there in sort of the range of online fundraising that's done? What's your opinion about the state of the art right now? So I think that the best programs are the ones that work to build trust. And in my view, what building trust means is that, you know, I think there's a, a time and place for probably any type of email, but I think that it's really important to create a relationship between your candidate and your audience or between your organization and your audience. And sometimes that means not asking for money or sometimes that means prioritizing a personal story or sharing why a candidate's involved or talking about their childhood or a meeting that they've had with a constituent. Not always putting something that feels like it has to be breaking news or a 10x match or something like that in front of folks. Inevitably, for any campaign, there are real moments of need or panic. And so when that happens, I think it's important that you have an established relationship so that people believe you and so that they can react. So that's my view on it. There is a wide range. And look, like I I said, I think there is probably a time and place for those hair on fire emails, but that's when your hair is actually on fire. There are a number of ways to approach it, but I, I really, I do feel like the best ones are the ones that tell a story that are unique to a candidate. And as Zach was saying earlier, are not in that Mad Libs mode. Do you think those kind of more effort uh, style of communication works better ultimately in the short term and the long term? Does it raise more money? Does it avoid burning your list in a way that redounds to your benefit? Does it work better for the bigger progressive ecosystem where you're not alienating donors for other campaigns 
on our side. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that this goes back to the point of email not living in a silo. Um, And then that people who are experiencing your email program or your SMS program are also experiencing everything else that we all go through in our day-to-day lives. And so I think that connecting with your candidate or your organization in ways outside of email allows you to both build your brand in a more positive way and also, yes, ultimately raise more money. Zach, how do you think about the acquisition of lists for your candidate, right? This is a common practice. It makes a lot of sense right now. I've talked to Grassroots Analytics, which has made a very thriving business in finding donors out there, matching them to texts, selling them to campaigns, and they're not the only ones in that space by any means. It's candy to a campaign to have a new list to reach out to. You have another 10,000 people. Some of them are going to give you money. They're going to add to your list. It becomes a kind of an ROI question, probably. Can I spend $1,000 and make $20,000? It's impossible to turn that down in a campaign that matters so much. How do you think about uh, sort of the organic building of a list versus the paid acquisition of different kinds of data that could help you grow faster? Well, and again, not to keep bringing it back to the firm, but this was a problem that we sought to solve as well, because really you need to do both at the same time, right? And like, your paid acquisition will be more cost effective if your organic acquisition is going well, because if your organic acquisition is going well, that's because you're getting good attention, right? Like your candidates out there, people know about the race in some way. People are excited about the race. Before it works well and it's optimized, you need momentum, right? And that's really where we come in because digital firms now are are good at capturing that momentum once it happens. What we do is not only are we good at capturing that momentum once it happens, but we strive to create that momentum as well. And that's where the earned media piece comes in. Jane can talk about some of the technical ends of this as well, but from a manager standpoint, a candidate standpoint, before you launch, it's really important to think through, how am I launching? What media can I afford to go on versus you know which are more risky? Like, you know, am I ready to do an MSNBC interview or, or should I do print pieces, right? You know, and so that's a very important uh, risk assessment to take with the team prior to launching. And you need to know that answer. You need to know why you're running. I've been blessed to work with, with candidates who are just amazing, amazing leaders and people in their own right. And every single one of them had an incredible answer of why they're running. But I think a lot of people <laughs> may not necessarily have that answer thought, right? Because they've been thinking about running for so long. But you have to show that authenticity of like what what drives you from your core? Because sometimes candidates come at this, they've been in this world for a long time. And sometimes we get distracted in the weeds of the day-to-day of being in politics. But it's really important, I think, in the launch to always come back to why you're in this space at all and showing your authentic self and having a thoughtful strategy of how to show your authentic self in earned. And then on top of that, have a thoughtful technical strategy to acquire donors who hear that message in a cost-effective way. 
every candidate's a little different. Like on, on Val Demings, for instance, we knew we could afford, you know, a really hefty acquisition by in the beginning because people were familiar with who she was and it paid for itself within a day of launch. But not every candidate's like that. Like a congressional candidate, I remember with Andy Kim, for instance, we would do smaller buys, right? To eventually get him to that point where it made sense and it paid for itself. That's where the, you know, the digital firm comes in. You need a really good firm to help you assess um, the risk, the financial risk, right? Of, of what makes sense in terms of acquisition. But then you also need a comm strategy to make that acquisition plan as cost-effective as possible. Can I ask Jane a question? What I'm hearing, among other things, is that the launch of a campaign is a really important moment to kind of establish what kind of campaign this is and get in place the DNA of how you're going to communicate. Who is this and what level of credibility there is? So my question is, one, what is your best advice to a new campaign about how to do this? And two, to what degree are you able to use that expertise in launching your own firm? So to take the campaign piece first, there are lots of moments that you can't recreate and you can't get back. Launch is something that you have the most control over. So I think the hard and fast advice that I would always give is that it's better to launch well than it is to launch fast, which is to say that you can have a lot of these pieces lined up, right? There's some momentum that you can build before a launch, tools you can get in place so that you can deploy them much, much faster when that launch happens. That's first and foremost, what I would say for a campaign. The analogy for for this firm, I think is, is very, very clear. Like I would actually argue that this firm has been in the making for a very long time. These silos have existed inside campaigns and inside organizations really to date, right? And so I think this need has been there for a while. And I think that's something that Zach, Joshua, and I have have all seen, shared frustrations from our different vantage points and have been thoughtful about how we put this into motion. So I, I think that it's it's uh, in many ways one of the same or one in the same um, when it comes to, to strategy and what have you. Zach, what, what is the founding story for liftoff campaigns? We are merely a group of, of operatives who are passionate about electing Democratic candidates and have worked on for these campaigns directly and have each seen through different sides, right? Like Jane comes from the digital side, Joshua Karp comes from the communication side, I come from the campaign manager side. Each of us have seen this, this gaping flaw or problem in the marketplace right now that you need to marriage both your earned media strategy with your digital digital strategy to raise money. And you need to do so in a way that builds attention, but also gets attention responsibly and doesn't pose big risks. We all were frustrated that that, that offering wasn't available to us in any of the campaigns we've worked on, and we've had to create it in some way, right? Um, and so we just decided, well, why don't we start a firm that does all that, right? That serves both the press needs, the earned media needs with the digital needs, the technical needs to help clients and candidates build brands that raise money, get attention, raise money, and do so in a way that also amplifies their core message or their core brand to voters. Jane, th there is a long history in progressive politics, democratic politics, of 
practitioners observing things that ought to be married together, as Zach said, trying to do that and finding that the market isn't ready for it yet. That when you go to a campaign, say the managers are used to the silos that exist, they don't know how to fit this square peg into the several round holes that are existing on the campaign side. It's a struggle to match the maybe advanced conception that someone's come up with, that maybe you guys have come up with, with the reality of the buyer. What's your sense of how what you've got is going to be received or has been so far received? So I think a couple of things here. First, I find myself incredibly fortunate to be partnering with both Joshua and Zach because they are proven and experienced in their own respective fields that carries a lot of weight. So I think we have the exact right people working on this together. That's one piece. The other piece, though, you know, in terms of other people being ready for it, I would also look to COVID here because I think what COVID and all of our experience working in general has taught us is that we actually we can do a lot of the things that we need to do online. Because of that experience, there's maybe a little bit more reception to some of these pieces. I also think it put a little bit more of a spotlight on the the issues that Zach, Joshua, and I are, are working to address. The answer is like whenever we've, we've talked to folks about this firm now and, and prior to launch, there's been an overwhelming amount of enthusiasm for this model. The response that we have gotten is, Thank you. Um, absolutely. We need this. I certainly understand the question, but I will say that my experience since starting this has just been an overwhelming amount of enthusiasm and, and in some ways, gratitude um, for housing all of this under one roof and for uh, taking this approach. Zach, if I were uh, running a competing firm to yours that's already established, and instead of having a few people at the beginning at, at launch, had you know already had 60 people and a lot of clients, and I was hearing that you were starting to pick up clients, and I didn't have a comms component, I'd hire, I'd add in a partner that did comms, and I'd be like, we got it too. What do you think is different about what you're trying to do than what someone else could patch in later? Jane kind of touched on this. We're very lucky in some ways to have found each other, right? Because we each were thinking about this in our own rights as practitioners, right? And not only did we, you know, write the playbook of this, right? I mean, from the Jamie Harrison launch in, in 2019 to now, I mean, like you look at the Senate launches this cycle, whether it was Ruben Gallego, Alyssa Slotkin, um, it's kind of down to a science in the sense that there's a launch video, there's a national cable hit, right? And then there's in-state uh, interviews and, and events as well to show momentum in the state and really nail that process narrative early on and doing a ton of acquisition on the digital end prior to launching. We're proud that, you know, we, we did this one a lot. There were a lot of voices that, that were, you know, skeptical of this. At the end of the day, it's always great, you know, any campaign managers listening, it's always great to do a race in a state or a district that, you know, may not be on the radar yet, right, of, of establishment, because you can do a lot of interesting, innovative things. I'll say, I mean, like, we're, we're proud that we're, you know, we're building a, a huge team here to, to, you know, to work on our clients. I don't think you can beat our collective experiences of address, of not only um, 
running into this problem, but addressing and solving this problem. I do hope for the sake of the democratic ecosystem that we as a, as a, you know, ecosystem uh, do fix this because on the right, um, you see it with the Fox News apparatus, the Murdoch apparatus, that they have figured out that sometimes the most powerful leaders, the most well-funded leaders as well, um, are able to master earned media communication and mobilizing voters and donors through earned media. And digital fundraising is merely a way to measure that, right? Voting is another way to measure that. And I do think it's incumbent upon us as a party to, to recognize that. And some, some of us you know, in the party do it better than others. We're really proud that you know, we've done it really well and have launched a firm devoted to it. I am hopeful and, and encouraged right, others to, to look at this because it's, it's important for us as a party to, you know, to win, to, to fund ourselves. We don't have the same infrastructure financially that the Republicans do when it comes to higher dollar fundraising. We need grassroots enthusiasm. We need to engage low dollar donors. And we need to and can and have do it in a way uh, that doesn't turn us into Marjorie Taylor Greens to a point where we, we can no longer win general elections. There's a way we can do it on our side where we're able to, to still be practical leaders who can win elections and, and still raise the funds we need to compete with Republicans. I just coined in my head that if they're serving up red meat, maybe we don't need to serve up blue meat. I don't know if anyone's used that phrase before, but Jane, what is an ideal client for you? Like, who would you love to work for kind of as a category and can you be more specific about how your firm would fit into the other consultants on the team, the leadership of the team? Because it seems like you're asking to be a very important part of that campaign. There's always a tension between what is brought in-house versus what is consulted out. What's the best way that you advise a campaign to integrate with you and your firm? Where I would start here is, I guess like, let's take the, the client pieces first. Something that I feel deeply excited to be working on is the abortion ballot initiative in Ohio. And that's something that we've been involved with for a while now. And I think it's a really great example of the work that we can do when we are you know in the right environment, right? And so the kind of thing where on the client side, and they're, they're doing so much good work on the ground, but they're extremely receptive to the ideas and ways that they can generate earned media, um, that they can create a splash, that they can create a moment. I think we're already seeing a model for success there. Like something like I've always noticed for online fundraising is that usually like what's good for America is bad for fundraising. The ballot initiative there has actually moved forward in a way that no one was expecting. We thought that Republicans would be much more in the way than they are. And we've still been able to raise money hand over fist online. And that's because we've been able to work with with them to, uh, to to make sure that we have the right media coverage in place and that earned communications are in sync with and very much talking to what we're doing for online fundraising. So I think like that's an excellent proof point and a really good example of an ideal client and, and how this works so well. On the, the campaign side, like, look, like there are always going to be, you know, some of these candidates who are willing to, to, you know, make a splash or like, or throw bombs. But I think our view is that you don't always need to be able 
to do that. Um, the I think the the folks that we are uh, hoping to to continue working with um, are the ones who are frankly willing to embrace both the the communication strategy and the fundraising strategy together as one. And as I said earlier, the really really good news is that there's a ton of enthusiasm for it, and people frankly agree with the approach and are really, really receptive to it. So the candidates or the clients that we'd love to work for are are the ones who want to work with us. One of the challenges about launching any new firm, political consulting firm among them with partners is the management side. On one dimension, you're trying to help your clients. On another, you have to run a business. How have you decided who's in charge or how do you make decisions collectively about internal allocation of resources, about how you set up all your processes, about who you reach out to and and why, and, and all the decisions that you have to make about company culture and hiring, firing, and the like. Well, we're lucky that you know, we each come with different skill sets, but 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 similar commitment, obviously, right? And like an equal commitment, I should say, equal commitment to our staff, our our clients, and servicing them well and doing good work. And what's nice is that we all each also have core strengths, right? Whether that's managing, whether that's like budgeting, whether that's digital and communication. So we're actually, I think, I think a little different from other startups where. Everyone kind of comes from the exact same core specialty, uh, but we don't. <laughs> so that actually, like, that's part of our strength because our model, you know, which is answering the needs of modern campaigning requires that, right? It requires you to not only think about what your digital acquisition costs will be, but also what's your press strategy to get your, your brand and your message out to ensure that that digital acquisition strategy is as cost effective as possible. So it's the same way in terms of actually running the firm is that each of our core strengths uh, really help to you know, build the firm and, and run the firm and, and service our clients well. I was talking recently to a diversity consultant and I asked this person, how big of an enterprise should you start thinking about that aspect of hiring? And the answer was right away, right? Like two people that if you miss the opportunity early on to have diversity at a leadership level and a staff level, that it can become very difficult over time to, and in the democratic world, we're a very mixed, diverse group of candidates and thankfully electorate. How have you guys thought about that? It's an excellent question, and I am so glad that you asked. First and foremost, it's a core value of not just you know the partners, but of all of our clients too. To that end, uh, we will have some exciting leadership announcements to share soon. We can't wait for you to hear about them. And similarly, we will have announcements about the staff and the team that we're building. But rest assured, it is a core value and something that we plan to embody indefinitely. How's it going as a business so far? If I had to guess, I'd say, you know, you guys come to this with relationships, maybe with, it sounds like with existing business connections to a great network, but 
Have you already found enough work for the cycle? Is there a lot of work to get to that point? Are you trying, like at what pace are you trying to grow this? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, well, we've been really pleased by, you know, the response that we've been getting so far and not just from clients, but also from prospect staff as well. I think this is something that's ecosystem wide in our talks with clients, but also staff. It's just been very clear that this is something that a lot of people have been thinking about, but may not have had the experience or the contacts to turn it into a business, right? Turn it into a firm because it's been so siloed, right? The communications people don't necessarily know the digital people as much, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's why we want to break down the silo. It's been really good to see both from client demand and staff desires and, and demand as well. So we've been really you know, pleased by you know, being able to scale. And so that's why we're just really excited to see how big we, we can grow uh, in the first year, in the first cycle, um, but feeling really, really good about it. Jane, one of the things I noticed about you is that you spent, I think, two stints at Bully Pulpit including as a director, which I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds very elevated. I knew Andrew Bleeker before Bully Pulpit. I've talked to him about that firm. It's a quite a sizable enterprise. How do you think about scale of firm and services in this market? If you are picked up by a Senate race and they have access to the youth three principles so far, there's a lot of expertise. Once you get a lot of different clients, it's hard to get the people with the most experience. How are you thinking about like what kind of firm works well size-wise? Andrew and the whole team at BPI are great. I have nothing but excellent things to, to say about them. And I think they've continued to um, build and grow a fantastic shop. Just to answer your question in terms of how we hire and scale, you know, I think a commitment we're happy to make is that you will always get a partner if you're a client of ours. And that's, I think, just something that's important to us uh, because of how we're structuring the firm here. So we're fully committed to being um, an ingrained member of the team for all of our clients. Uh, and that's not something that will ever go away. Zach, if I sat here for a few minutes, I could probably write down at least 20 digital fundraising firms that uh, seem to be prospering in this space that have a lot of clients. And I'm sure there's more than that. What do you think will most distinguish you from the other good firms that are out there? If you're pitching a campaign, what are you saying that's different about you that matters to the candidate, to the campaign manager out there? We've been in their shoes. We've been in the shoes of, of the people on the campaign that, that are making these decisions and, and are seeing that the way to raise real money is to combine communications and digital. And there's no firm that does that right now. We're the only firm that's equipped to provide the, not only the, the digital needs of, of modern campaign to raise the most money and acquire donors, but also the earned media tactical and press needs that a modern campaign needs to build a brand and elevate and amplify that brand to as many people as possible, particularly in launch when it comes to donors and doing so in a way that is on message and doesn't pose big risks. There's just no other firm that does that. What does digital mean? What's the breadth of what that covers in the year 2023? That might be 
my social media presence? Do I have a TikTok strategy? It ranges from email to texting to advertisement online. It's overlapping, of course, with what a media firm does. And there's been many people have said to me, it's not just comms, but it's media that ought to be merged together with digital communications. What is the boundaries of digital for you guys? I think the short answer is there are no boundaries. And what I mean by that is, yeah, it goes back to what we were saying earlier, that people don't experience their life or how they consume information in a way that distinguishes between where they're getting it from. And I think like an excellent, excellent example of this is a Vanity Fair spread on Val Demings um, that, you know, walked through her bio, an excellent like picture of her on motorcycle. But that's the kind of thing that also gets shared online and that gets, you know, that that motivates donors and that has reached far beyond whatever is hitting, you know, newsstands at the grocery store, right? I would say that there really are no no boundaries like on the digital space because it's all integrated and because it um that, that's just not how people experience consumption. So should a campaign go to a media consultant who also now does digital and then they would have an integrated feel to what they're expressing? This goes back to, I think, like why why anyone who works with us will will always get a partner and why we want to be integrated with all of our clients, right? Our goal is to to work with the campaign team very, very closely. We want to be the first phone call. We are the first phone call uh, for for actually all of our clients these days, um, which which is great. That's and that's that's exactly what we want. So having you know, strong and smart teams are, are, you know, is always going to be critical for anyone to be successful. But um, I think like the, the biggest piece here is making sure that everyone who's involved is, is singing from the same song sheet is, is working toward the same goal and understands that nothing lives alone and that there's always going to be something downstream from any action that we take. Jack, what's the biggest challenge for you now? I think the biggest challenge for me now is you know, whenever you have a new concept in a market, there's always naturally a little bit of, of skepticism. Like one of the biggest questions we tend to get is, well, does this work for someone who's not running for Senate, right? Does this work for someone who's not a big name, right? And the answer to that is it does. We could talk for a long time about members of Congress who are household names now, and not just firebrands, right? I'm not just talking about, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or the left versions of Marjorie Taylor Green. We don't have a left version of her, do we? <laughs> I'm not going to name any names, obviously. You want to know your district, right? You, you, you want to know wherever it is you're running and, and cater to and ensure that, like, your brand is balancing both your personal beliefs and, like I said, authenticity is the most important thing but also doing that in a way that is doing right by your constituents. And you can do that without being what we would call a bomb thrower. You can have a very smart earned media strategy where if there are certain issues that are important for your district or that you are passionate about come up in the national conversation, you're going to go on CNN, you're going to go on MSNBC, you're going to talk to you know, not only local, but like the New York Times and, and talk about these issues, right? And, and become 
a voice, a national voice on whatever that is. And that's not bomb throwing. That could be very thoughtful leadership. And when we send an email, when we send a text, when people on Facebook see an ad, they're more likely to recognize who you are and what you're about and therefore more likely to join your cause, your movement. And that's what it's all about. No one wants to admit that they're a bomb thrower, right? But some some candidates, you know, whether like to be more controversial are naturally more controversial. Have you just said that that those are not the candidates you want to work with? No, not necessarily. You don't have to do that. When I've talked to people who are running communications firms, say a lot of times they have, if they're, if they're modest in size, they've said like, we're focusing on this subset of the market, the most progressive candidates, the candidates in the purple toss-up seats or candidates in the South, where would you say as a firm, you're going to find your identity or have you thought about that? Jane. So I think that like, look, like we, our priority, I think as a firm is to go deep with people who we work with. Right. So I think before we say, Hey, we want to be like with this type of candidate or that type of candidate, the real answer here is that for this model to work, we need to be fully ingrained with the team on the ground. Those are the candidates we want to work with. So more they're willing to integrate with you than who they are and what they stand for? We're certainly a democratic firm, so you're not going to find us working for the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world. But it takes a willingness to embrace, you know, something new. We, like we know it's a model that works. But I think, again, like the folks who embrace the model um, are, are the ones who will find success with it. I'm not sure if I've asked the right questions to get at exactly what you want to be and who you are. What should I have asked that would elicit that properly? The best way to answer that is that like every candidate has a different, um, is unique in some way, right? And and what we're trying to get at is we want to, we want to take whatever that is, whatever that's unique about them, whether that's, um, you know, a, a personal story they had, a personal experience they had, whether that's an opponent they're running against or the viability of their race, there's something unique that sets them apart from everyone else. And again, we live in the marketplace of attention, right? And in order to get eyeballs in the marketplace of attention, we need to focus in on what makes them different and unique. We only work for people that share democratic principles and are committed to electing Democrats, but they may have different ways or different styles, right, of showing what they're passionate about. And that's what I was trying to get at, too, is that like you don't I, I think what, what you know, one of the challenges that we face is that I think a lot of operatives assume that the only way to get attention and raise grassroots money is to take positions that aren't necessarily the best positions to take or run on positions that aren't necessarily the best positions to run on in a certain state. And you don't have to do that. There are ways to demonstrate your commitment to, to a cause and, and your authenticity in a way that isn't necessarily pigeonholing you one way or, or another. And I just think, I think that's one mistake that a lot of people make that it's, it's, you have to do that or you can't do this at all. There are candidates 
Republican candidates who, in this point in our history, they seem a little unbounded by reality. They seem willing to push conspiracy theories. And there's a lot of people who, observing the country right now, really see a high-stakes battle between a party that embraces democracy and a party that's willing to jettison it to win. I think I subscribe to that in large part. There is a, a substantial risk to the country right now uh, of some terrible stuff happening if the Republicans get united control of the federal government ag again for a while. Does the aspect of being in that fight, if that's somewhere near how you see it, change how you think about how you play the game, how hard you try to win, to what extent you're willing to go to defeat the opponent, what advice you give? I have a lot of thoughts about this, actually, because when we were thinking about the concept of the sperm, you know, we look at what the right does and they will use the tools of earn media and particularly digital online earn media for undemocratic causes, right? And I think it makes it even more important for our side to recognize the power of the combination of earned media and and digital, right? Because it's power. I mean, attention is power, money's power, and you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. Those are the people on on their side, right? Donald Trump. And it's not even just in this country, it's around the world where this is happening. And I just think it's incumbent on people who subscribe to lowercase d democratic principles, regardless of party, it's important for those voices to also at least attempt to have that same microphone because there needs to be, the market can't just be Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, right? The market can't just be anti-democratic forces, um, oftentimes propped up by foreign regimes. We need to ensure that good people, right, are in that marketplace as well. And I would say that's another big component and mission of where the, our passion drives from. I don't think that you can work in democratic politics if you don't feel passionately about something. And I couldn't agree with you more that the stakes are really, really high, right? There are a million and one things to point to, but I mean... I, I remember how I felt when, like, even recently, when Roe was overturned, right? And so I think that's just a crystal clear example of why this work is so important. It goes beyond the email. It goes beyond like the press hit. It's like real issues that impact real people. And at the end of the day, that's what this comes down to, right? Like that's why we're doing this. That's why we work with the clients that we do. That's what gets me out of bed and working for this firm and in this party because there's so much on the line. But it even goes beyond like Roe, as awful as that Supreme Court decision is and its consequences for human beings in this country, you have a president running again, a former president running again, who was unable to accept his defeat in a democratic election. And you're in the election game. And if we are moving to a situation where 
the other side is nominating and electing people at the state level and the national level who are willing to jettison the basics of democracy, which is accepting defeat when you lose and standing again at another time. It feels like that's got to affect everybody who's in the politics game unless they are just like wearing blinders. There's obviously a lot going on right now that, that needs to be fixed, you know, and we can talk all day about what's going wrong. One of the, I think, saving graces of the last election, and I'm speaking to someone who did not win in the last election, but at least looking around the map, the people that, that were at least known to voters as undemocratic, we saw across the country in Arizona and Pennsylvania, those candidates lost. Narrowly narrowly but they did lose and you know this was not supposed to be a year as we all know right that democrats kept the senate and 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 didn't lose the house as much as people expected i worked in florida last cycle ron DeSantis is is, is you know um i think a lot of people are, are seeing around the country just how of a corrupt leader he is and just a you know wrong for not only wrong for florida but wrong for the country but he wasn't necessarily defined in terms of the money differential. He wasn't defined as like an undemocratic, you know, figure. But, but candidates that were largely lost. And I do think that at least poses some hope. And I can't speak for everyone on our side, but like at least the way we view it. I mean, there, there are just some principles that you have to subscribe to, right? Like democracy. I will never work for a candidate who if we lose, insist that we did not lose. That's just not someone I would ever want to be a part of. And unfortunately, on, on the other side, it does seem like if there's a market for it, it's fair game. So if there's a market for undemocratic ideas, then it's fair game. They got consultants working for Josh Hawley or you name the person on the other side that wouldn't impeach the president for this and are echoing the stop the steal rhetoric. And it seems unacceptable to me for a political professional to go down that road. A hundred percent agree. I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we political professionals because we aspire to the system of democracy? I think it's incumbent on us as political professionals to almost play gatekeeper here and, and, and police this in terms of, you know, ensuring that our clients, our candidates. All... I think I think I agree too, but I it's it is kind of a, a situation if the other side won't police their people and we police ours, we're left without with a broken party and a careful party. I don't know. What gives me hope, though, and again, it's it's just so cynical. But what gives me hope is that I think the last election did prove that it's bad. It's bad marketing to be undemocratic, and that's it, what's until they win and change the rules enough so that they don't care. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to take us too far down that road. I, but I, this is actually something I've been thinking about too. Like last election, I was so worried as a citizen and a political professional, like what happens to our profession? What happens to everything that we care about? I mean, we all go into this because we're passionate about something, right? And none of that really matters if there's no system of democracy. I would think that there would be a big element of starting a firm like you guys have started 
would be the satisfaction of being on the right side of a big fight, of the fight of our times. How much does that play into things, to give you a softball question? We, of course, are only working for like, for people who believe in democracy, for people who believe that every vote should count and that elections matter. It's supremely important. Well, and I also think that just to piggyback on that, we are the first firm to marriage communications and digital fundraising. And there are forces out there that, that do the same thing for undemocratic means. And you can say that about any tactic, right? There are tactics that, that people out there will use for evil. But we are committed as a firm. And part of the reason we started the firm is to help good people on the Democratic side of the aisle compete. Because currently, I personally believe that the earned media marketplace is dominated by the Republicans have mastered it, whether that's Donald Trump or even just the idea, some of the issues that we're forced to talk about, like defunding the police. Everyone who ran a race in the last now four years has had to talk about defunding the police, even though nobody that we've ever worked for believes we should defund the police. The only reason we're doing that is because the Republicans have mastered this earned media narrative. We come at, at this solving that earned media gap when it comes to digital fundraising, but it's also something that could be expanded to the overall democratic ecosystem and small d uh, democratic uh, system. Well, I hope that you guys are making a notable advance in how we do this in campaigns. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it today. Is there anything else you want to say? I did actually just want to go back quickly to point out too that moments can be important in either direction um, in that uh, like take the, you know, the death of the queen, for example, um, which was a huge national moment um, that caused fundraising operations for campaigns across the U S to completely nosedive. Conversely, the, the very unfortunate death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think most people's donations really started to skyrocket. So as much as positive moments can create momentum sad or more depressing moments uh, can also really kind of take the wind out of your sails and depress your audience as well. So actually, I think maybe this question was around challenges, um, but I think the challenges are often around unforeseen news or news that you can't control that have um, the opposite effect, uh, like the Queen's death. There's no question that what's going on in the world affects campaigns, you know, whether it's macroeconomic or war or day-to-day news cycles. That's the water you swim in when you're trying to make things happen in politics. Yeah, and a campaign's you know whole existence is surfing the waves that we get, right? Um, and so if the queen dies, um, or if there's a big news, if there's a big news event that takes up the, the attention, you know, or, or fills up the media ecosystem, we need to find strategic ways to get back in there and it's a marketplace of attention. We need to find ways to get back in that conversation, get that attention to have the momentum to win. Proud to have be the only firm that can help candidates do that. I wonder how much we get focused on the tactical like that and how much we need to be thinking, you know, over the whole course of the campaign strategically about 
these are the things that we want to get out there at some point. We're going to wait for the right moment for them. To what extent can we plan and to what extent do we have to ad lib based on unpredictable stuff? I'm sure that that's something that you guys consider, but it seems like the best run campaigns are combining those. Agree. It's, it's both and. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks much for talking to me. Those were Zach and Jane. They're at liftoffcampaigns.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.